Today's reading comes to us from Esther chapter 1 out of the message paraphrase. This is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. King Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The military brass of Persia and Media were also there, along with the princes and governors of the provinces. For six months, he put on exhibit the huge wealth of his empire in its stunningly beautiful royal splendors. At the conclusion of the exhibit, the king threw a week-long party for everyone living in Susa, the capital, important and unimportant alike. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to civil rings on marble columns. Silver and gold couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in golden chalices, each chalice of each kind. The royal wine flowed freely, a generous king. The guests could drink as much as they liked, king's orders, with waiters at their elbows to refill the drinks. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside King Xerxes' royal palace. On the seventh day of the party, the king, high on the wine, ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants, Meumen, Bistha, Arbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring him Queen Vashti resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good looking. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs. The king lost his temper, seething with anger over her insolence. The king called in his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his ad- expert advisors. Those closest to him were Karshetha, Zethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marius, Marjina, and Mimukin, the seven highest ranking princes of Persia and Media, the inner circle with access to the king's ear. He asked them what legal recourse they had against Queen Vashti for not obeying King Xerxes' summons delivered by the eunuchs. Mimukin spoke up in the council of the king and princes. It's not only the king Queen Vashti has insulted, it's all of us, leaders and people alike and every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? King Xerxes ordered her to be brought before him, and she wouldn't do it. When the women hear it, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. The day the wives of the Persian and Mede officials get wind of the queen's brazenness, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? So, if the king agrees, let him pronounce a royal ruling and have it recorded in the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it cannot be revoked. That Vashti is permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence. And then let the king give her royal position to a woman who knows her place. When the king's ruling becomes public knowledge throughout the kingdom, extensive as it is, 
every woman, regardless of her social position, will show proper respect to her husband. The king and the princes liked this. The king did what Mimukin proposed. He sent bulletins to every part of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language. Every man is master of his own house. Whatever he says goes. This is the word of the Lord. Some background on this, on this particular book, uh, Book of Esther, it's one of only two books in the, in the Hebrew Bible that, actually I should say in all of Scripture, that have no mention of God and God does not have a speaking role. Kind of interesting to think about that. There's no mention of God and God does not have a speaking role. It seems to be just straight script or historical nature of, uh, of what happened in these events. And a lot of scholars believe that the first chapter was actually added in later to provide more context to the greater part of the story. That this first chapter was, was never involved in the greater narrative of this book, but it added, it added later. And so it's interesting uh, when you look at how, what this story has meant within the Jewish community throughout time, like why would they include this book? Um, why does it matter to them? Why of all the books that could have been written, this was one that they included? There are two reasons that most Jewish scholars lean on for why they, would, why they included this book. The first one is that they wanted to be able to display what it was like for the Persian Empire versus the Hebrew people and what it looked like to be a people who lived with God and not lived with God. And you'll notice in this very first chapter that there's this overabundance explanation of like all of this wealth, right? There's like a whole paragraph about how incredible uh, the wealth was that they had. And then he spends 180 days, six months, celebrating and showing off his wealth, climax with this week-long party. And so they're wanting to begin to show us this overabundance of wealth that the Persians had. And the Hebrews, they lived amongst the Persians, but they did not have that kind of wealth. They lived a very simple lives. Persians lived with much wealth. And so there's, that's one reason. The second reason that often this story is told is because uh, this shows the ways in which if you read the whole book of Esther, which I encourage you to maybe do this week, continue to read the rest of this book and this story and see how things play out, um, you'll find that God is at work behind the scenes in ways that folks cannot see, think, believe, or imagine. And so another reason why the Jewish community kept this book was to be able to say, when bad things are happening, remember, God is at work. Even when humans are making poor choices, God is at work, using those poor choices still for God's purposes. So these are two reasons why this book um, is believed to have been written. And I think what I want to talk about really quick for a moment is the first reason that the Jewish community looks at this book, which was that what it looks like for the Persians who were without a God and what it looked like for the Hebrews who were with God. There was a highlighting a picture here, this idea that, that we, are, we as the Hebrews know in our hearts what is right or is wrong because God has written the law in our hearts. And we as the Hebrew people know what is right and wrong and what is good in our very core and our very being, and these people do not. And I, I want to kind of push back on that idea a little bit, um, that every human knows in their heart of hearts what's right or wrong. I, I don't know if I believe that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't actually think that's true. Um, and my, when, I, when, I, when I think about that, for instance, uh, one example that might, you might think about is a child as they're growing up. And I'm just going to highlight that. I'm going to nuance the way I say some of this because I know we have children in the room, but I will talk a little bit today about abuse and neglect and unhealthy power dynamics, but I will nuance the way in which I, I speak about that. Um, but a, a child who grows up in a home where there's any type of neglect or abuse or um, harm that is done, the child is, is taught, right, by society and by the world and kind of intuitively that they're just to trust that parent, that that parent has been put in their lives to care for them, that parent means the best for them. Um, 
And reality is, is they think that everything that may be going on at first is they're just trying to help me. They're disciplining me. They're upset with me. Or they did, they're, they're struggling with something. It's not about me. Whatever it may be. Or I did something wrong and I deserve this. All these narratives can, can spin in someone's mind, right? This nuance between right and wrong. And reality is, as, as children get older, they begin to realize and put the story together that actually what they thought was right and what was maybe a normal childhood or a normal way to be treated was not in any way right, right? And so I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that, that sometimes we, what we think is right and wrong isn't always actually inherent in our being. Think about the other po- power dynamics. In this story today, we have the king who seems to have placed authority over the queen. And so I think about adult relationships throughout my life uh, where abuse has occurred. And so often one of the, sp- the, the spouses being abused thinks, oh, they're just really angry. Oh, I just shouldn't have said that. Oh, I just shouldn't have done that. Or they promise to not do it again, right? And, and they, this common narrative is thread, and they, they find themselves not really knowing what is truth and what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is reality and what is their false sense of reality. We have this happen because this is what happens when power dynamics are blurred, is it not? When our sense of right and wrong are blurred, when our sense of what is good and what is evil is blurred, it's hard to live in the tension. We see this, this can exist between a boss and a superior as well, right? A, a boss can gaslight their, their, uh, their, their uh, not superior, what's the wrong I'm looking for? Subordinate, subordinate thank you. Um, they could gaslight their subordinate and the subordinate thinks, oh my gosh, you know, what am I doing? What's wrong? Why do I keep doing that? What's happening here? And a, a, a neglect can also occur in that relationship, right? Like the, the boss could not do their end of the work and ends up affecting the work of the other coworkers. Um, we see this as, as well play out with police officers and civilians, right, in our world. Like where white people um, have a default trust oftentimes for police officers and folks who grew up in black and brown communities are often taught by their parents, be very, very conscious of how you act if you ever engage with a police officer. Right? And these power dynamics that exist here and cause things to be blurred and not so black and white and difficult to live with. And so in our story today, we, we see this, these power structures uh, living with tension. And so what I want us to, to recognize is that I don't think that this, this idea that if you're with God, if you have God in community and you know what's right and wrong and you're following God and following Yahweh, that then in that space, life will be good. Then in that space, God will protect you and God's with you and God will bless you. Because we all know from reality is is that even in spaces where God is, quote-unquote, at the center, great pain and abuse happens. Great sadness happens. Great blurring of the lines of right and wrong happens. There isn't this, well, if you're Persian without God, then you know what's going to happen. Because you don't know what's right and wrong. But if you're with God, then you know right and wrong and things are going to work out. I don't think anything's ever that black and white. And I think history tells us very clearly that abuse and pain and struggle and power dynamics and power being used to lloyd over others for your own gain and benefit, it doesn't just happen in non-religious settings. It happens in religious settings as well, and sometimes the religious beliefs are the very power that's used to cause the pain. And I think this story is, is, is a gentle reminder to us today of this reality. We see in the story, right, that King Xerxes 
Uh, he, he rules from India to Ethiopia. He's in the third year of his reign, which basically he's comfortable. He's like, no one's probably coming for me. I'm, I'm, I've, I've got this. This is, this is my land. This is my ownership, my power now. I, I've established my authority here. And so, like I said, he spends six months showing off all of his wealth. At the end of the, at the, end of the six months, he decides to have a week-long party. I love the, the description of this. And everybody who's drinking, they have, a, they have waiters at their elbows. Just boom, bumping elbows, pouring. Everyone's drinking to the point on the seventh day when the king is just so wasted beyond belief that he decides to ask something of his wife, as we highlighted earlier, for her to be brought in her crown. And some scholars believe, and many Jewish interpretation historically, was that she would be brought only in her crown. Hebrew Bible isn't often very explicit. It will say things like, um, she exposed his feet as symbolism of certain imagery of things throughout Scripture. And so that's why uh, this is believed that perhaps... She was being asked to come in front of everyone at the party and parade around in only her crown. She refuses, of course. She refuses, and the king loses his temper. It completely embarrasses him, so he calls his experts, right, and they tell him about the legal recourse that he could have against her for disobeying and not following the rules. When I, when I hear this story, read this story this week, the thing that came to my mind right away it's kind of interesting, was all of the times throughout um, college and even in my teen years where I would go to a conference or I would even just go to church and the pastor would introduce his wife. And it was always a man introducing his wife. And he would say something like, this is my beautiful wife or this is my smoking hot wife. I remember that at a youth conference once. A youth conference introduced his wife as that. And I thought, whoa, no one in the room thinks this is weird? Like, no one in the room thinks that that's not okay, that, that you're referring to your wife simply by her beauty, not by her brilliance? Mary uh, DeMuth writes in Christianity Today a really great article about how she struggled to be comfortable engaging um, intimacy with her husband because she experienced childhood abuse um, by neighborhood bullies as a kid. She highlights going to a women's conference where a panel of women were sitting up there talking about what it looked like to try to be more attractive and engaging in the bedroom. And she thought, I have a hard time just performing to begin with. Now you're telling me I have to do all these things. This sounds unreachable. Describing to her her role as a wife was simply to be someone that helped maintain the urges of her husband feeling like she had to be so much more, that she was more than just supporting her husband, that perhaps maybe she had something to offer the world too. Perhaps she had a reputation and she needed him to support her in certain things. Perhaps he should be thinking about ways in which to help her get more comfortable with intimacy. I hear this story read today and I can't help but stop and think about the unhealthy power dynamics that, yes, exist in this text, but still exist in many Christian cultures and in the secular world today. Some things people are blind to, they don't see. But I hope we can see a little more clearly today that the king viewed her simply as a piece of property he could parade around instead of an equal. If he had seen her as an equal, perhaps this would have all played out very different. But what's so fascinating to me about this story is, as I begin to study this week, it was not normal custom for Persians to have separate gatherings where men and women were having different parties, totally fine to intermix and intermingle. 
Historians have found no proof that they would ever have to have separate parties. Yet for some reason, the queen is having a separate party with the women elsewhere. I can't help but stop and wonder if the king had an M.O. I can't help but stop and wonder if she knew what he would do when he got drunk. If he knew, if she knew how unhinged and the poor choices he would make. And so she decided maybe I'm going to have a separate party. I wonder if she felt a deep sense of courage when the eunuchs came in the room, seven of them, seven of them, the intimidation, the power to say, hey, the king wants you and just your crown at the party. The courage she might have felt by the other women in the room who reached over and perhaps held her hand and said, you don't have to go. The courage it took to say no when there was very little power in her corner. I can hear this story and I think about our body series where we talked about uh, assault and abuse one Sunday. And I realized after that Sunday that um, everyone in the panel had shared their own experiences with assault and abuse and I never shared anything. And part of it was because I thought, well, I never really had an experience like those that stood up on the stage and shared so boldly and courageously about their experiences. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, yeah, I did. Neglect is a form of abuse. And I began to think about all those times that my dad, um, with his drinking, would make poor choices and how hard Father's Day is for me because of those choices. How hard it is for me to acknowledge my gratitude for him or my brevity of our relationship, the brevity of our relationship because of the times that I would wake up in the middle of the night with a police officer waking me to say, hey, I'm going to take you to your grandma's because my dad was in, the, was in the jail for making poor choices and leaving me home alone as he went out to drink, getting into a bar fight or pulling a gun on somebody or driving his car through people's garages and how angry I would feel for, to, towards him that this would happen again and again. As a kid, you know, I just thought the best about my dad. I just thought somebody must have done something that deserved for him to start a fight. As a kid, I thought, oh, he must have just drank too much and he just didn't know his limit and he made a poor choice tonight. Oh, my dad, he pulled a gun on that person because they didn't invite him to the party. I would have been sad too if someone didn't invite me to a party. But as I got older, I remember I would say to my mom, if I had any sense that my dad had been drinking, I don't want to go this weekend. Mom always respected that. And I began to have consent and agency over myself to say, no, I'm not going there. It's not safe. As, we've got, as I've gotten older, my dad has called me before, drunk, ready to air dirty laundry and have hard conversations, and I've just said, no, I'm not having this conversation while you're drunk. And I created a boundary and hung up the phone, texted him the next day and said, hey, you brought these things up when you were drunk. Love to talk about them when you're sober if you're feeling better today. We've never had those conversations. I can remember one night when I was staying with my grandma during college that my, step, my, my, my dad walked into the house ready to pick up my sister, who's about a decade younger than me, and he was drunk and intoxicated, and I said, there's no way she can go in the car with him like that. I wrestled him to the ground, pushed him off of the stoop, and locked the door behind him. I popped down into the lazy boy, in my grandma's living room, and I cried. 
because I realized in that moment, this isn't normal. This isn't normal, and this isn't okay. And I created more and more boundaries with him. And the more boundaries I created, the safer I felt. And I hear in this story today, this woman, Queen Vashti, who finally, perhaps, after being asked multiple times, I don't know, I'm assuming that, perhaps after seeing a trend, realizes, I've had enough. I don't know what consequences are going to come from this. I don't know what my future is. I don't know who's going to help me or how I'm going to get help. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just, I'm just done. I've continued to think that maybe he had my best in mind. I continue to think this was a good life, and I realize now it's not. And with courage, she says no. And so a whole conversation transpires, doesn't it? A whole conversation transpires between the king and his advisors about women in the, this country of angry women who, who need to know their place. And every woman, regardless of her social position, should be respecting their husbands, they say. And so an edict is sent out to everyone. And look, I notice this, in every language it says. Because there were people who weren't just Persians living in the land. Remember, Persia had taken over the land. And so there are people there who are originals to the land. And so the Persian king is saying, not not just the Persians, everybody, no matter what your culture, your beliefs are, this is the new edict of the land. Reminding the Hebrew people as well they needed to follow Persian law. Every man is a master of his own home. Whatever he says goes. Theologian Lender Keck says, the dignity of Persian men is so precarious that the actions of one woman threatens the whole house of cards. How weak can your power be? How weak can your structure be that the actions of one woman you fear will destroy the whole thing? Having the bravery and confidence to stand up to an inappropriate request from a superior, whether that's a boss or a parent or a partner or someone you've gone on a date with, is paramount to the moral foundation of society and it is one of the most difficult things to do when you feel so powerless And not just feel powerless, but the person with power over you has taken all the power from you so that you can't say no. It's difficult because Queen Vashti is meant in this very moment with incredible wealth and power and social safety that the whole scene was set up for us in the very first chapter. And yet in the midst of all of that, in the midst of an inappropriate abuse of a drunken misogynistic king, she rocks the boat. And they're afraid that this one woman rocking the boat might just sink the whole boat if all the women decide to follow her lead at this party. I was thinking um, about the, the, the power of not having power. Have you, how many of you ever lost power in your house? Ever lost power? I heard from someone at Imago this weekend who lost power in their house for six, six hours and life just kind of stopped. And the reality is, is when you, when you lose power in your house, what happens a lot of times? You, you look out the windows or you go outside. You know, Is it just us? Did somebody not pay the bill? Did something fall in the house, right? You look and other people come out. Nope, I lost power too. Did you lose power? Yep, I lost. Oh, we all, the whole block lost power. All right, we're in this together. And all of a sudden, maybe you, you come together. Well, hey, I have a generator. We can, maybe we can put some food together in, the, in, a, in of our, one of our fridges, and we can preserve this. Or, hey, do you need anything, or do you need anything? And we, we kind of come together. The, the losing power all of a sudden draws us together in community to try to find power to keep moving forward. I think about the Me Too movement is an example of that in our country, is it not? 
It is now spread around the world, but it is, it is a movement that says, I've lost power, and through lost power, and through power being taken from you, power is found. Not having power sometimes draws people together, and I can't help but wonder how much power she, and empowered she felt in that moment. I wonder what role the women in that party played for her. We know from the rest of the book of Esther that she is replaced by a queen named Esther who goes with her brilliance and her subtle rebellion to also bring restoration and save the Jewish people. But I can't help but stop and remember that it was Queen Vashti's no that started the whole thing. If you keep reading later in the book, there's even a, a male figure, Hebrew male figure, who says no to the king's, one of the king's requests, and it, uphold, it just upturns the whole system again. This first no was like a bunch of people coming out after the power's been lost, going, have you lost power? Are you tired of this? Are you tired of this? Is this too hard? How can we come together? What can we do? This isn't working. And something was shifting. Something was changing. The no of many groups of abused and elected people to whom power was loited over instead of leveraged for, we remember today. We remember the no's of of, of Queen Vashti. And we remember also as we celebrate Juneteenth this weekend, the wife of a slave owner of Frederick Douglass, who despite the ban of the rule of the land, one might say of a king or a president, right? She began to teach slaves how to read and write. And one of the slaves that she taught to read and write was Frederick Douglass. She taught him the alphabet and how to read. Frederick Douglass later went on to become the first um, African-American citizen to hold a high position within the U.S. government. Her no. Her no led to change that perhaps she never even came to see materialized. We remember the no of Harriet Tubman, who was born into slavery, but she eventually became one of the most important conductors of the Underground Railroad. Putting her own life and freedom on the line, Harriet, like Queen Vashti, said no and made the trip to the South 19 times in order to guide more African-American slaves to freedom in the North. Juneteenth was a day when slavery ended, but for many who had experienced the bonds of slavery, they were basically looked around and said, sure, it's over, but who's going to hire us? What wealth and money do we have to go and leave here and to buy dinner tonight on our way out of town? Sure, you've given us our freedom, yet we have no power to live our freedom. Individuals like Harriet Tubman and many others who helped smuggle folks and immigrate out of the South and create new lives, giving them a new beginning, refused to see those be left behind. But how about this one? Probably the one that maybe is most familiar to our minds. But Rosa Parks, whose no on a bus helped to initiate the civil rights movement in the U.S. when she refused to give up a seat after an inappropriate ask from a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama bus in 1955. And the outrage that grew from it. Of people who said, no. We're tired of the power being stripped from us for inappropriate asks and requests. 
And now as we observe Pride Month this month as well, we remember the nose of individuals like Marsha P. Johnson, who's most notably remembered for saying no more at the Stonewall Uprising of 1969, choosing to not be silent as she was placed into a squad car for simply just being an out trans woman at a bar. After years of abuse and neglect as a trans woman, as a black trans woman, she said no more to the police and the government who, cho- who chose to criminalize her identity. Or Cleve Jones, as I spoke about a few weeks ago, uh, showing you pictures of uh, the Washington Monument layered with quilts representing people who had died from AIDS because the government had turned its blind eye to those who were dying. And Cleve Jones organized that quilt laying uh, in 1985. Cleve and those in the queer community were asked to die in silence and isolation and take the punishment of gay cancer for their sexuality. But they refused to be quiet. They refused to take the requests of an inappropriate person in power. And then, of course, as I highlighted earlier, the Me Too movement. Tarna Burke, she was the first to use the phrase in 2006. But it wasn't until much later, in about, I think it was 2017 is what I was able to see, that this phrase, Me Too, captured the attentions because of a famous Hollywood actress who tweeted out Me Too and used her power, her authority, her platform to give people empowerment to be able to say, Me Too, Me Too, Me Too. Which captures the attention of millions of women around the world who, in a voice of solidarity, leading to a global reckoning on assault and abuse in our world and a conversation. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I never really understood the power dynamics that existed that caused the Me Too movement until the Me Too movement came to be. And I was forced and allowed, and space was created to have conversations that helped me see oh, I can see why it would be uncomfortable for a woman or for a male, depending on the gender and the relationship of power to be made a move on in their workplace and to be afraid to say no because of what that could mean for their career. I understand more clearly now what it looks like for the dynamic of a pastor and a parishioner and that relationship that can, can play out, that can be difficult in power dynamics. I understand more clearly now what it looks like when men who are senators and leaders of our country use their power use their places of authority and privilege to get something from someone else in an inappropriate way. But I'm going to be honest with you. I honestly did not understand that before. Probably because I'm a white male. And it's because of these women who said, me too, and raised and elevated the conversation that I have for the first time been able to fully, maybe not fully, but in, a, in some glimpse of a way, better understand And so as we look to Queen Vashti today as a face of our faith, because we live in a world where edicts and power structures were dominated by men, she found her voice and she butted the system. And guess what? People are still finding their voices and butting the system today. Queen Vashti is a face of our faith because she is a reminder to us of strength and resilience of women despite the age-old systems, ideals, and patriarchal structures that would try to hold them down. Queen Vashti is a face of our faith because she reminds us that women's worth isn't defined by their beauty, but by their brilliance. And Queen Vashti reminds us that queer pastor, me, that it's okay to be queer. That it's okay to be different. It's okay to not fit the norms of the day. It's okay to not 
allow the power structures of the day to thrust their agenda and their roles and their beliefs upon you. Queen Vashti reminds me this Pride Month that it's okay to resist laws and legislations of leaders that take collective voice to try to put those on the outside, on the margins, and use their power over instead of their power to empower. Queen Vashti reminds me this morning, and I hope that she reminds you, that the arc of history, it bends towards justice. It's a long and treacherous journey, one that we see stretching back even here into the Hebrew Scriptures. But with every no, with every act of resistance, I believe that a more inclusive and equitable world is being built. And so may we look to Queen Vashti, and we look to her collective no that continues to reverberate throughout history. And let us build our faith in our world upon the face of a fierce queen, Queen Vashti.